Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. What happens when a borrower goes into default and what the steps are to get to a foreclosure auction and even after with Junior Lien Holder? Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Real Estate Lab podcast. In this lab, we decode the stories, secrets, and skills of the most brilliant minds in real estate investing, then turn their wisdom into practical advice and knowledge that we can use to boost our income. And now, let's turn it over to our host, V. It's a great day to be alive and to invest in real estate. My name is V. Koo, and you are now listening to my show, the Real Estate Lab podcast. Welcome back to another edition, another week of my podcast. Today, we are going to talk about foreclosure. Now, it's inevitable that the next wave of foreclosure will be here. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Now, I understand there are two schools of thoughts going on right now. There are many, many salespeople who will most likely tell you that real estate is booming everywhere, prices are going up, supplies is dropping, and so do not wait. If you are trying to get into the real estate investing game, now is the time, do not wait. You will not see the interest rate this low ever again, so take advantage of the booming market right now. Then there are people like me, like my friends, Aaron Lebove, who's the guest for today's episode. He's the founder of Renav, R-E-N-A-V.com. Renav is Colorado's source for distressed property information. He's also a licensed realtor with EXP Realty. Like many other investors who started investing in the last crash, and even some people before 2008, we are seeing the same norms and the patterns that happened before 2008. Now, on the surface, everything was rosy. The same salespeople were out there telling everyone to buy. I remember 2005, 2006, people were telling everyone the real estate market is booming, supplies dropping, we have to buy now. One individual I know bought a property in 2006 for a million dollars. A couple years later, that same property was foreclosed and was sold for $350,000. So everything was rosy on the surface, but underneath, it's the furthest thing from rosy. We are going to talk about the reasons why I think this wave is massive and what you will need to do to benefit. So pay attention to this episode, especially if you are living in Colorado. My friends, Aaron Lebovic, who invested in over 130 properties, is extremely knowledgeable when it comes to foreclosure timelines and things that you can do in each phase so that you can benefit from the downturn. Now, it doesn't mean that if you are not in this state, in the state of Colorado, you should listen to this episode, learn from it, and take the advice, the information from Aaron's, and see where you can apply this to your state. Because each state's foreclosure process and the timeline is different. 
So take the information from this episode, from what Aaron's had to share with us today, and see where you can apply in your own situation. All right, let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of the Rosely Lab podcast. So earlier, I've mentioned that 2008 was a big crash, but this one I think is going to be massive, even bigger than 2008. Now let's start with forbearance. In a forbearance agreement, the lenders agrees to reduce or suspend your payment amount for a set period amount of time. Now, once the set amount passed, the lender will either temporarily increase your monthly payment until you are caught or you're supposed to pay a lump sum payment equal to the payment you would normally have to pay during the set time period. Most of the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac loans were granted three months to six months forbearance this year due to the pandemic. So that means that if your normal payment, let's say, is $1,500 a month, now you have to pay $4,500 at once, plus the payment for your current month, which pushed your total to $6,000 if you had a three months deferment or forbearance period. What if you had requested a six months forbearance? Now, in that example um, that I talked about above, it means that you will now have to pay $10,500 all at once. Now, imagine this scenario. If you did not have money to pay one month, more than likely, you're not going to have money to pay four months or even seven months all at once, right? Then, Then what would happen? Now, If the homeowner at a certain age, that individual, that homeowner could try to refinance with a reverse mortgage, then that person wouldn't have to pay back the reverse mortgage because you don't have to pay any payment until you pass away, right? But for the rest of us, we'll have to pay close attention to the foreclosure timelines, especially, especially for investors, because there are many opportunities for us to take the property and save the homeowner from foreclosures. It's very doable. And I know many, many of my friends, including myself, did it back in 2008. Old is new again. So you will have to pay attention to today's episode to what Aaron's had to say uh, later in in a little bit. We'll, We'll share more. Now, foreclosure is when lenders takes back property after the homeowner fails to make a mortgage payment, right? Now, I have to caution you, the foreclosure processes actually differ by state. But however, under federal law, a loan servicer cannot start the state foreclosure process until the loan is at least 120 days past due, right? So if you think about this, you have the forbearance and then you have to miss more payments, um, that if you went full out December 31st, 2020 is the the time that your forbearance runs out, you still potentially might have more times to, to miss your payments before people will start doing anything. So my estimation is that we will not see anything, any activity picked up uh, 
until about Q3 of 2021 or possibly even Q4. So after you missed your loans is more than 120 days past due, the bank will send out notice of election and demand, an NED or notice of default. And that's basically when uh, they initiate the foreclosure process. Then what happened? I'm going to share with you the attorney answer. But since I am not an attorney, I will share information I found from two articles on nolo.com by attorney Amy Loft-Gordon and Stephen Elliott. All right, so we have two systems going on. We have a non-judicial foreclosure where a court doesn't have to approve the foreclosure. And then we have a judicial foreclosure which takes longer than a non-judicial foreclosure. This process actually allows the homeowners to oppose the foreclosure. If the property is located in the following state and the property is secure by a mortgage, the foreclosure will probably take part in a court. So make sure you are not driving if you are taking note for this part. All right. So states like Connecticut, Delaware, D.C., New Jersey, New Mexico, Florida, Hawaii, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maine, New York, North Dakota, Ohio, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Vermont, and Wisconsin, right? So those states are more than likely will have the um, foreclosure in court. Oklahoma and South Dakota, it's only occur when the homeowner requests for it to go to court. For the rest of the states, including Colorado, the court will not oversee the procedure. So we have the following states that more than likely is a non-judicial foreclosure state. Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Colorado, California, sometimes in districts of Columbia, sometimes. Georgia, Idaho, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, Nevada, New Hampshire, New Mexico, North Carolina, Oregon, Rhode Island, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Virginia, Washington State, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Then again, Oklahoma and South Dakota. Basically, if the homeowner requests for judicial, then it's judicial. Uh, if they don't request it, then it's non-judicial foreclosure. All right. So that now you know the differences between the two. Let's have Aaron share with us the foreclosure timeline in Colorado. So here's the foreclosure timeline. And what we're going to talk about is what happens when a borrower goes into default and what the steps are to get to a foreclosure auction and even after with junior lien holder redemption rights. Um, this timeline, to be clear, only applies to Colorado. And the law had changed officially January 1st of 2008. So foreclosures filed prior to that date were under a different law. And this is currently the process for foreclosures in Colorado. So imagine this, the, the borrowers default on the loan. And there's actually multiple reasons why a borrower could default on a loan. It could be that they didn't make payments, obviously. 
but also there's the due on sale clause and the alienation clause. Like even if the former owner deeded the property to somebody else and sold it as a subject to deal where an investor bought it subject to the existing loan on title and the investors making payments on that loan, that would be cause for a default on the loan as well. If the bank wanted to, uh, usually if they're receiving payments, they're not going to start a foreclosure process. Uh, also, the abandonment of the property, if they have to board up and secure the property, they might foreclose. This timeline that I'm going to talk about today doesn't assume the reason for the default. It just says there's a default. And this timeline also doesn't assume the lien position that's in foreclosure. It could be a first, a second, a twelfth. Uh, whatever lien position is foreclosing is foreclosing, and it's only liens junior recorded subsequent in time to the lien position that's foreclosing. Uh, it's only liens junior to the foreclosing lien position that have redemption rights. So here we go. Let's say Tom and Mary bought a house and then years later they defaulted on their loan. That's this pre-foreclosure default. And then the bank reaches out, sends a notice of default to the uh, borrower saying, hey, let's get you on track. And that goes ignored or they try to do a modification and that doesn't work. And so the bank files a notice of election and demand, an NED. That document is recorded at the county level and it sets the stage and the timeline for the rest of the foreclosure process. And it determines who can do what, when, and how, meaning junior liens and their redemption rights. So the NED gets filed and the sale date will be set to take place in a window of time being 110 to 125 days from the day the NED is filed. That time period between the NED and the sale date is called the cure period. If you take nothing else away from this conversation, remember this. That cure period, almost four months or even above four months, is designed to give the homeowner enough time to make the decision to not lose their property at auction. It's designed for them to work with you and to explore their options. And again, that's about four months. So this cure period is an amazing opportunity. In fact, that's typically the volume of opportunity for realtors and investors to reach out to distressed homeowners. That's where most properties are where there's opportunity. So the NED gets filed. The sale date will be set to take place about four months later. And the homeowner can cure the loan before then as well. That means that they raise the money to bring the loan current before the foreclosure auction. Now, let's say the homeowner doesn't cure the loan, doesn't sell the property, doesn't take advantage of other opportunities to, to stall the sale or stop it. And if the bank and the sale date is set to take place, let's say this Thursday, in Colorado, in order for property to sell at auction, the lender has to submit a bid at least two business days prior to the sale by noon. And let's say the bank doesn't submit a bid. That sale date will automatically be pushed back for one week. So now let's say it's the next week, it's Tuesday, 11.59, 12, 12.01, no bid is submitted again. That sale date will automatically be pushed back for another week. And this could literally go on week by week by week of the bank pushing back the foreclosure sale date simply because they're not submitting a bid to bring the property to sale. Or let's change the example and say John, the agent, reaches out to the homeowner and says, hey, you're about to lose your house at auction, can I sell it and you'll make money? And the homeowner says, sure. 
So they, I wish it was always that easy, but <laughs> let's suspend uh, reality for just a moment and, and, um, and go with this example. Uh, in reality, obviously, there's a lot more follow-up and emotions behind it. Uh, it definitely can be done and there's a huge volume of opportunity, but let's just make it easy today. So John lists the property, gets it under contract, sale date is scheduled to take place in two weeks, and the closing for the contract is scheduled to take place in 30 days. So John gets an authorization letter from the borrower, the homeowner, and contacts the bank and asks the bank to push the sale date back. It's up to the bank whether they want to do that or not. But in this example, let's say they are okay with it, which is often the case. And they, the bank pushes the sale date back for, let's say, a month so the contract can get closed. Whether the sale date gets pushed back week by week by week simply because this bank did not submit a bid or they give John a month here and then that contract falls through. So they give another month for the next buyer. That sale date can be pushed back for up to one year from the original scheduled sale date. If the bank doesn't actually bring that property to sale within that one year period, the file will be withdrawn. And then in the future, if the bank wants to foreclose again, they have to start the process over and file a new notice of election and demand. There's one exception to that. There's always like one exception to everything, really, at least one. And that's in the case of bankruptcy. Imagine this clock, this timeline being like a clock. And let's say the, uh, the, the bank pushed back the sale date for a week. And then the day after the original scheduled sale date, the file, um, the homeowner filed bankruptcy. That stops that clock. And then let's say the homeowner is in bankruptcy for two years or three years and then is still in default against the bank. And then the bank removes the home from the bankruptcy filing or the bankruptcy is closed out. Yeah, the borrower is still in default. The bank can then foreclose that next week as long as they get a bid in at least two business days by noon prior to the sale. So that time period could be well over a year from the original scheduled sale date in the case of a bankruptcy. All right, let's clean the slate and do a different example. Let's say the lender does submit a bid at least two business days prior to the auction and the property ends up going to sale. There's two potential winning bidders at foreclosure auction. One is an investor who buys the property at auction and the other potential winning bidder is the bank. That's how an REO is made. Property goes to auction. No investors compete against the bank because the price is too high for an investor to buy it. The bank is the winning bidder, and that's an REO. Another way a property becomes an REO is if the homeowner before, you know, after the NED, but before the sale says, look, I know I'm in foreclosure, but here's the keys I'm done. That's a deed in lieu of foreclosure. That's another way a property becomes an REO, but without having to foreclose. So let's say the property goes to sale, regardless of who the winning bidder is, whether it's the bank or an investor, the same process takes place after. First, a certificate of purchase is recorded within five business days showing who was the winning bidder, how much did they pay for the property, and subject to certain things happening or not happening, that winning bidder might end up getting title to the property. Well, if there's no junior liens on title meaning liens that were recorded subsequent in time to the original recording date of the lien position that's foreclosing. If there are no junior liens, then the confirmation deed is just going to be given to the winning bidder about 19 business days following the auction. 
But what could prevent that auction buyer from getting title to the property is called junior lien holder redemption rights. So let's say there was a first on title for $100,000. We're going to use easy math here. That's the lien position that's foreclosing, $100,000 first. Let's say there's a second on title that was subsequent in time recorded to the original recording date of the lien that's foreclosing, and they're owed $50,000. And there's a third on title that's owed $25,000. Now, you can access this timeline, by the way, to follow along if you download, um, go to renav.com slash timeline and get a visual for what I'm about to share um, if you want to pull it up yourself. So let's say it's a first for 100 that's foreclosing. The first junior lien, this reads a little funny, but it's technically accurate. The first junior lien is the first lien junior to the foreclosing lien position that filed an intent to redeem within eight business days following the auction. They're the ones that are going to be first in line to redeem out the auction buyer by paying the auction buyer off what they bought the property for at auction, plus certain statutorily allowed costs and expenses that they incurred. The first junior lien has a window of time being 15 to 19 business days following the auction to bring in that amount of money to the public trustee to redeem out the auction buyer. And what they're going to get is a certificate of redemption. Public trustee is going to say, hey, congratulations, you redeemed out the auction buyer. You may or may not end up owning the property. What could prevent the second on title from owning the property is the third on title, who's owed $25,000, that also filed an intent to redeem within eight business days following the auction. And they bring in the $50,000 necessary to pay off the second on title, plus the $100,000 plus certain costs to redeem out that's needed to redeem out the first on title, essentially paying back the second who, who brought in that money. And because the third on title is the final lien to redeem, they're the ones that are going to get the confirmation deed. Now, you might be asking, well, how does this apply to me as a real estate investor or me representing investors at auction? It's typically not the original creditor who is doing the redeeming to own these properties. It's not the original creditor that can free up tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars within 19 business days following the auction to redeem out the auction buyer and execute on the redemption rights. It's usually an investor who contacts these junior lien holders and says, hey, are you going to redeem out the auction buyer or are you going to be wiped off of title and get nothing? Because I've got option C, which is you're owed $50,000. Let me buy your lien for $10,000 because unless you were going to redeem out the auction buyer and want to own real estate, that might be the most you end up getting and you'd write off the rest. So something's better than nothing. Let me buy your lien at a discount and redeem you out and redeem out the auction buyer and let me take on the property. So it's usually junior lien holders that are doing that. Now, if it was Chase Bank or Wells Fargo or Quicken that was the lien holder, these junior liens, that's going to be an incredibly difficult challenge to contact somebody competent enough to, to make that deal. But if it's a judgment collection agency or a local bank or a credit union or a mechanics lien that you want to use for its redemption rights, those entities are very easy to find a decision maker and to have an intelligent conversation with. So I'll give you my example 
of uh, when I was buying at foreclosure auctions actively, uh, there was a property going to auction. It was a commercial property. 235000 was owed on the first. And there was a $96,000 second and a little $3,000 judgment third. Both junior liens were originally made and recorded prior to the recording date of the NED. Both were still valid liens. And so technically both had redemption rights. I go to the auction, thought, I thought the property was worth a half a million dollars. It was a commercial property on Santa, Fe, on Santa Fe in Denver. And at the time it was worth a half a million dollars. Now I'm sure it's worth much, much more. I go to auction to buy it at auction. And there was only one other guy in there that was ready to bid on this theater I had discovered before the auction started. And he told me, Aaron, you don't want to bid against me. And I was like, dude, I'm from Chicago. You don't, be- you wouldn't believe the stuff I've dealt with, you know, with people threatening me or telling me not to compete against them. And it's true. It's, <laughs> oh my gosh, the things I've seen. Uh, he said, well, hear me out. And he tried to give me these compelling reasons why not to bid against him. The auctioneer came in, started the auction. He ended up being the winning bidder. I did not compete against him. I went back and I confirmed what I knew to be true. There were two junior liens on title. I confirmed who owned what and how much was paid, you know, owed. I ended up connecting with the first junior lien, meaning the second on title. I called him and I was like, hey, A, B, or C. A, you get wiped off of title and get nothing. B, you redeem out the auction buyer. And now you might own, be the proud owner of this property and you'd have to free up over 235000 within a short period of time and get through that red tape. Or C is you're owed $96,000. I you know, clarified that. And I'll offer you $30,000 for your lien position because I want the redemption rights. And she said, well, can you increase your offer? And I said, would you take 60,000? And she said, how soon can you be here with a cashier's check? She was an entity, a lien holder um, that had an office in downtown Denver. And so literally I just swing by the bank. I pick up a cashier's check for 60,000. I go to her office and I exchange this check for $60,000 for a deed of trust with a face value, meaning an an amount of debt owed of $96,000. I file the intent to redeem Within eight business days following the auction, that's when that intent to redeem needs to be gotten in, regardless of lien position wanting to redeem out the auction buyer. It doesn't matter in which order they file it. They just, you know, all junior liens have to get their intents to redeem in to the public trustee within eight business days following the auction if they want to execute on that. So I get the intent to redeem in 15 to 19 business days after the auction, I come in to the public trustee's office with about 235000 to redeem out the auction buyer. I receive a certificate of redemption. And for about five business days, I was the proud potential owner of this commercial property. What happened? Why did I not end up owning the property? The third on title, that little judgment for $3,000, they redeemed me out. Pop quiz, how much did they redeem me out for? The $235,000 that I paid to the auction buyer to redeem them out, plus how much? plus $96,000. When I teach this class live, I usually ask and people answer, well, they redeem me out, you know, 235 plus 60. And others say 235 plus 96. People think it's 60 because that's how much I paid for the lien. But what I'm owed as the lien holder is 96. I just bought it at a discount. I made the spread. I made the difference between the two in a relatively short amount of time. 
And that's, you know, just one of the many opportunities for not just buying at auction, but also the junior lien holders buying those for the redemption rights or what I'll get to uh, later in a class I teach is in this class is um, excess proceeds. Then a question that I'm often asked is, Aaron, why didn't you buy the third? Because that was in the last position and the final decision maker for redeeming out the auction buyer and the second on title. And they're the ones that ended up getting the property. Do you remember I mentioned that at the auction, this guy gave me compelling reasons not to bid against him? He owned the third. So he told me in the auction, Aaron, I own the junior lien. If you bid against me at auction, I'm just going to redeem you out. And you're going to have to wait 20 or so days to get your money back. And it'll all have been worth, you know, for nothing, you'll tie up your money. So don't bid against me. And before auction, I did my due diligence. So I knew there was a first, a second and a third. And I believed that he owned at least one of the junior liens. So there you have it. That's the foreclosure timeline. Um, and in summary, there's a couple of different times of opportunity. One is as soon as the NED is filed and during the cure period, that's the volume of people. That's the highest volume number of properties um, in the distressed property period in the timeline um, where now the NED is filed. The homeowner really can't stick their head in the sand anymore. They have to make a decision. There's buying at foreclosure auction, and then there's buying junior liens for their redemption rights and excess proceeds rights. There you have the foreclosure timeline. So and there you have it. Aaron went over different ways that you can take advantage of uh, the foreclosure timeline. This is specifically for Colorado. I remember in the past when we were, my business partner and I were actively going after foreclosure. We actually went to auction and uh, bought up junior liens and especially HOA liens. Uh, those HOA liens are easier to negotiate because people who runs HOA wants money. So if you could find a property with HOA super liens or IRS liens even, uh, you could easily negotiate with them, give them some money and then go in for redemption right. This will allow you to buy properties with virtually no competition. If you think about this, when you compete with other investors, especially the ones that are looking just on the MOS, you are going to end up paying a higher price. If you could work out some of these details and go in almost like sneak attack. You don't have anyone to compete with. Maybe, maybe one out of 10 deals, you might run into a situation where you might see another sophisticated investor who also knows about the ins and outs of foreclosure and will compete with you. you know, just like the, the deal that Aaron talked about. But again, that chance is very slim. It's almost close to zero that you will run into uh, that same situation. So I encourage you to check out the foreclosure timeline for your own state and learn all the ins and out of the foreclosure process for your particular state. Now, if you are in Colorado, make sure to check out Aaron's website is renaf.com, www.renaf.com. I have used his website numerous, numerous of times. And to this day, I still use it. His company provide one of the best 
best data set out there for foreclosure-related information, more or less distressed properties information. I have used it for finding short sales deals, buying REO, uh, real estate-owned properties, go to auction, prepare for auctions. And now uh, one of the best features that he just recently added is to search for liens. So essentially you have everything, everything you need under one roof uh, at renaf.com, www.renav.com. We'll be back again next week with another episode of the Real Estate Lab Podcast. Thank you so much. And I'm signing off. This is Viku and thank you. That's the end of the show. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a five stars rating and review on iTunes for the Real Estate Lab Podcast. Until next time, have a prolific week.